Lord, we come to you today thankful for your kindness to us. Lord, experiencing the, the joy of, of worship and song and uh, our, our children coming before us and showing us the things that they're learning. And Lord, the way that we rejoice, Lord, over your provision uh, in, in answering our prayer requests, Lord, for those in our church who've been going through some trials and struggles. Now, Lord, we desire to gather ourselves before you and under your word. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us humility to receive it, that I, as your mouthpiece, would be faithful to proclaim your truth and that you would be glorified in it. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When I first came to California, my first pastorate in this state, uh, I took time to sit down with the pastoral staff, and there's one particular pastoral uh, staff member that I uh, was sitting down talking with quite a bit about uh, ministry and church and things like that. And one of the things that I was saying was that uh, the essential uh, place that we're speaking about was the essential place of the Word of God in the life of the church. And as I emphasized that it is the Word of God that drives the church, he responded by saying this, it is almost as if you're treating the Bible as part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. We need something more. And it was at a time in American Christian culture, friends, where the emphasis on the Scripture was being eclipsed by an emphasis on experiencing God. In other words, meeting God at some kind of mountaintop experience or feeling his presence with dimmed lights and candles aglow, or sensing his power with the sunrise and the sunset, all of which might fit under the general category of God's general revelation. The heavens do declare the glory of God, right? Creation does scream at us that God exists. But to truly know God, one must pick up his word and open it. Friends, if you're seeking to know God without the guidance and the instruction of the Scriptures, you will run into a God of your own making. And friends, it's only through the Scriptures that we can truly know God, who He is, what He has done through the Gospel, and what He requires of us. Now, do you believe that? Is that what drives your life? And so we come to our text today, and maybe for some people in reading this text, the thing that jumps out to you is these people were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. But friends, that's not the emphasis of this passage. That's not the focus of what Luke is seeking to show us in this text. What he's showing us is the ongoing ministry of the Word of God. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, Luke has been pointing us to this ongoing ministry of the ascended Jesus in heaven through the Spirit-empowered preaching of the very Word of God by His apostles. And this apostolic witness, friends, is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension. This is the the story of the long-awaited Messiah that has been proclaimed through the Old Testament. And Luke wants us to see again and again the central place of the ministry of the Word of God in the life and the growth of God's church. This is what is driving our text. 
And in fact, it's what's driving chapter 16 through 19 in particular. This section, this particular missionary journey ends at chapter 19, verse 20. Just look a little bit further down in your text. This is a summary statement, but it gives us an understanding of what Luke is wanting to show us. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Don't miss this. It's, it's the author's way of saying, this is what I am showing you. He wants us to see clearly the Word of God and its impact and its activity. Notice what this passage and so many other summary passages don't say. They don't say the church continued to grow because of dynamic programs or electrifying worship services or a passion for social justice or powerful drama productions or exciting children's ministries or vibrant student ministries. No, it says the Word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. Now, don't get me wrong. All of those things I mentioned have a rightful place in the life of the church. But they are all to be fueled by the ministry of the Word. We'll always need programs, friends. We will always sing praises to God. We are a singing people. We're concerned about the place of justice and fairness and equity because those are some of God's attributes. And we are to use our gifts carefully and thoughtfully as channels for God's proclamation. We are to care about the ministry to the next generation. But all of that needs to be fashioned and shaped by God's Word. It's the Word that drives the growth and the health of God's church. So those kinds of endeavors, friends, those concerns, those pursuits should never eclipse the faithful and central place of the Word of God in the life of the church. And we must see that any endeavor, any program, any ministry pursuit must be fueled by a clear understanding of and a careful application of God's holy Word. The point here, friends, is this that church growth can only take place when God's people minister to other people with the Word of God. Remove the ministry of the Word, and you'll no longer have a gospel witness. You may have a gathering of people, but you don't have a church. And they might be there for a common cause, but you won't have the cause of Christ. Re water down the ministry of the Word, and you no longer have a gospel witness. And you'll have people who wrongly believe that they are converted. Set the ministry of the word aside, so to speak. Tack it on to a service where the pastor might have 50 minutes or so. And you're going to have a shallow, anemic congregation. When a church seeks to pursue gospel growth through methods and techniques of the world, it may gain a crowd. It may feel like it's being successful, but the reality is, friends, it will not be experiencing gospel growth. People are not wowed into the kingdom through secular or pragmatic ideologies. They are drawn into the church by God's Spirit through the ministry of His Word. And it is the conviction and the repentance of sin and Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the reconciliation and forgiveness that results, that ushers a person into God's kingdom. 
So I'm saying all this, friends, to drive home this, this theme that Luke is trying to show us as he is unpacking the story of the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. And this morning we want to be reminded once again of the need for the centrality of the ministry of the Word in our church growth strategy. If Gateway is going to grow, the Word of God must be central. And I know all of you are sitting out there and going, Pastor Rod, tell me something new. Tell me something new. I mean, Luke has been hammering this point, hasn't he? It's not like we haven't heard this before. It's not like we don't believe this. But friends, it is the Word of God that is necessary. Now you'll notice that Luke sets the scene here in verse 1. The last thing we saw Paul doing is recorded in chapter 18, verse 23. He's traveling through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. How do you think he was doing that? What do you think he was doing as he's strengthening the disciples? He's opening up the Word. He's showing them what God says. Then Luke records the account of the Priscilla and Priscilla in the Word to an eloquent Jew by the name of Apollos. We heard about that last week. Aside and explain the way of God more accurately. Again, word ministry from Aquila and Priscilla. And then Apollos now, in a sense, restored, corrected, goes off to Corinth. And now in verse 1, Luke reads the storyline, so to speak, to Paul and his arrival in Ephesus. Notice verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, this incredible city, this wealthy city, this pagan city, this city that had one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. Now, this wasn't Paul's first visit, was it? If you remember from last week, we read that in chapter 18, verses 19 to 21, that Paul comes to Ephesus, and he goes into the synagogue, and he unpacks the Word of God, and then he leaves. I mean, it doesn't seem like he's there for much time at all. It's almost as if he was coming to check out the place, a reconnaissance trip, so to speak, so that he could come back and he could do ministry once again in long term. But he was concerned about following the will of the Lord, and so he left, even though the people asked him to stay. And now we come back to this passage. Now, Paul is back in Ephesus, and what we will find is Paul interacting with three different groups of people. There are, first of all, the professing believers, secondly, the unbelievers, then third, the true believers, three different groups. And in each case, he will be employing a different kind of ministry of the Word. Now, friends, before we jump into this, I know we're talking about Paul, but when we're talking about Paul, don't think, well, I'm not an apostle, I'm not a pastor, I'm not an elder, I can't do this. What we're learning in this text, what we've already learned so far about the ministry of the Word is what most of us can do and should be doing and should be learning to do. How we handle the Word of God while we minister to others, that's something we can all be working on. We can also be placing ourselves under the ministry of the Word so that we can be growing and we can be trained and we can be equipped. What Paul's example gives us here is a window into three different kinds of word ministry that God uses to grow his church. 
first of all, word ministry to professing believers. I want to first examine Paul's interaction with these disciples. As it says there, there he found some disciples. And then ask ourselves the question, what can we learn from Paul's example? So first of all, the question, who does Paul encounter? Well, he encounters disciples. As he comes into the city, he is he encounters these disciples, and the word disciple most often is used in the book of Acts to talk about followers of Christ, but the context here shows that is not the case here. These were not followers of Christ. These were not disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist. Either they had been to Jerusalem and were baptized by John, or the message of John's baptism came to uh, Ephesus, and then they responded to it, to it in that way. Now see, John's baptism of repentance looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. It was a form of renewal or restoration in Judaism that once again looked for and longed for the coming of the Messiah. And John now comes and he's pointed to this coming Messiah. He's saying, I have prepared the way. I am coming to prepare the way. It wasn't a baptism that brought about conversion, but a baptism that restored the Jewish person's life to be living and looking for the Messiah. In a sense, John's baptism of repentance was a wake-up. He came slapping the people. There's something coming, there's something coming, there's something coming, there's someone coming, and you need to be ready for him. And Paul's encounter with these disciples can be summarized by three words. Ignorance, clarification, and fruit. And notice how Paul uses diagnostic questions to reveal what they believe. Let's first of all look at ignorance. And we notice in verse 3, or 2 and following, these words. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And that should kind of shock us a little bit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. So there were not disciples of Christ who had been converted and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what the pattern that we have in the book of Acts. They had believed John's message. And as such, they were looking for and expecting the Messiah, but they were ignorant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, they were ignorant about the specifics of that gospel. They may have heard of Jesus, but they didn't understand the gospel, I want to say activity and dynamic of what Jesus had gone through. Secondly, we're told they were ignorant of what had taken place at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit had been poured out on believers. In other words, they were lacking important pieces of information. They were coming up short. They, their gospel knowledge was incomplete. They were lacking the truth about the fullness of the gospel. Have you ever met anyone like that? You have conversations at the office, maybe, or conversations at school, or conversations with a coworker or a neighbor, and, and they, they start talking about, you know, Christianity. You strike up a conversation with them, and in due course, when you reveal to them that you're a Christian, they smile right back at you and say something like, I'm a Christian too. I love the teachings of Jesus. And they start rattling off some of his sayings, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Judge not lest you be judged. Oh, they love that one. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Blessed are the poor. And an uneasy feeling rises up within your heart, and you start wandering, don't you? Start wondering, do they really know the gospel? So you know what I'm talking about because you've had these encounters before, haven't you? Do they really understand what the Scriptures truly teach? Do they have the full picture? There are elements of gospel language in what they're saying, but there's some critical things missing. You've been there before? You had those conversations before? I'm sure you have. There is an ignorance. So what then does Paul do now as he continues this interaction with the disciples? He brings clarification. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So he, he took time to explain what John's baptism was and what it was not. He asked diagnostic questions. He explained what the scriptures actually taught. And he clarified that the person John was pointing to was none other than Jesus. Now I want you to notice that Paul here is not preaching. But he is ministering the word to the hearts of these disciples of John. His questions do two things. They gather information about what these disciples believe, and they open the door to further conversation. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, let's just step back a little bit. As Jews, they would have known about the Holy Spirit. He's there in the Old Testament. And so what's being referenced here is they didn't know the specifics of what happened with the Holy Spirit is really kind of what's taking place here. This fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. So, so Paul here is careful not only to see their ignorance, but to bring now clarification with the word to give them an understanding of what was true. And notice what happens next. We have fruit. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were 12 men in all. So when the disciples heard the clarifying word from the lips of Paul, they believed. The word of God explained and proclaimed bore fruit. And just like in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, and Acts chapter 7 in Samaria, and Acts chapter 10 with the Gentiles, after the people believed, an apostle laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This was the pattern of the, the outworking of the Holy Spirit as the gospel went forward into different parts of the Mediterranean. This would be considered the end of the earth. Friends, every time someone believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in their heart at that very moment. So this isn't a proof text for a second spiritual blessing. And many denominations that lean that direction will come here, and this is what they'll focus in on. This is all part of this initial spread of the Holy Spirit as the gospel took root in the people's hearts. And of course, Paul laying his hands on them is another evidence of his apostolic ministry among, along with Peter and John and the other apostles. So this is what Paul does encounter. He encounters these disciples, and he, he sees their ignorance, and he clarifies the truth of the, of the word, 
and the result is true. Now, what are some things that we can learn? And I've really kind of nailed it down to three things. First of all, like Paul, we will encounter people who are professing believers. Now, professing believers means they're not actually believers, but they claim to be believers. We'll likely run into them at school, at work, um, as neighbors, sometimes even in the context of church. They're professing believers, but they, they know little about what the Scriptures actually teach. Unfortunately, in today's context, the American church has been way too quick to respond to people claiming to be followers of Christ by fully embracing them without taking time to examine what it is they truly believe. We want to see the church grow. And in an American mindset, growth means more. Right? It means numbers. So yeah, come, be part of our church, okay? But do you know Christ? Do you realize one of the reasons why we say in our church that we are about the gospel of Jesus Christ is because we don't want to slip it in. We don't want people to feel like, oh, I'm a believer, but they don't know Christ. They haven't understood the gospel at all. We want to make sure that they do. Now, here are some examples of the kind of things professing believers might say. I'm sure you will recognize them. We believe that God is love. He loves everyone. Therefore, He loves us. We're all children of God created in His image. We know that Jesus set us a wonderful example of how we are to live our lives in this world. So we want to follow Christ. We know that we must be good people and that Jesus helps us get over that finish line. It doesn't matter how you live. Because we're all sinners, what matters is that you have added Jesus to your life. My Jesus doesn't condemn me. He loves me and takes me for who I am. Now, that's just a few. And I'm sure there's more that you can think of to add to that list. And friends, we encounter professing believers, don't we? And we're kind of like, oh, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? Do we just kind of like let it go? Do we interact? And Paul's example here is minister the Word of God. Gently, but do it by asking questions. And that's point number two here. Like Paul, we can ask sincere diagnostic questions. What questions did Paul ask as he encountered these disciples? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And when they said, no. Into what then were you baptized? He's asking more questions to, to gather the information so he can speak to them and correct their thinking. Sincerely asked questions do three things. There's probably more things they do, but these are the three things I came up with. First of all, they gain rapport and show the person that you care. You're interested in their answer to the question. You know, people, people like to interact. People like to give their opinion. People like to give their thoughts. And they're always, say, typically happy to speak with someone who generally has questions about what they think and what they believe. And so when you ask, you know, careful, thoughtful questions, 
it gains rapport. Secondly, it helps you gather information which reveals the heart. You want to know what's going on in that heart. You want to make sure that you're, I said, ministering the word in the right area with the right understanding. There are two questions you might want to begin with here. These come from Greg Kokel in his book called Tactics. They're called Columbo 1 and Columbo 2. They're really helpful here. Question number one, what do you mean? Or what, you know, what do you mean by that? It's the first question. You're asking for further clarification. You're asking them to develop their statement. What did you mean by that? The second question is then, how did you come to that conclusion? So it's not just what do you believe, but how did you come to the conclusion that that is true? But you're not, you're not challenging them yet. All you're doing is asking them a question and having them disclose to you how they came to the conclusion about these things. Third, questions help to guide the conversation toward gospel opportunities. They gain, they gather, they guide. Now, once you've gathered the facts by listening to the person, then you're ready to ask further diagnostic questions. And here, I'm going to build off just a few of the questions that, that came up, your statements that came up. Do you think that there is more to God than his love? Or if we are all children of God creating his image, what happens when we sin? Why does Jesus talk so much about hell? Okay, what, what you're doing with questions like that is you're bursting the bubble of their thinking because it's, it's limited. And you're helping them now think more about what the truth is. Or this one, the writers of the gospel did present Jesus as a wonderful example of how we are to live our lives. But didn't they also record many of the things that Jesus said? Don't you think that what we should pay attention to is not just what Jesus did, but also what Jesus says? Now, friends, this is, this is the point. Not only does Paul give us an example here, but it's an example that we can learn from. Like Paul, we can ask sincere diagnostic questions. Like Paul, we're going we're gonna to come face-to-face -face with these people. But like Paul, number three, we need to be a careful theologian. Paul is doing this because he's a careful theologian. You say, well, wait a second, Pastor Rod. You, Pastor Dennis, and the elders, you are the ones that need to be careful theologians. You are the ones in leadership and are called to watch out for false teachers and false doctrine. How can you expect us to be careful theologians? We didn't go to seminary. And my response to you is every man and every woman is a theologian. Every person in this room has a theology of God. The question is, what is your theology? And where do you learn that theology? How do you grow in that theology? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you have some things going for you. You have the Word of God, in your own language. Multiple translations. You have the Holy Spirit that opens the meaning of God's Word to you. That's His ministry of illumination. You have the church that is called to minister the Word so that you can, uh, as it says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness 
and respect. Isn't that what Paul's doing here? That's what we should be doing. So to be a careful theologian doesn't mean that you are a, a, a seminary professor. It just means that you're growing in your understanding of the truth of God's Word, and what it does is it allows you to see error. And then gently you can say, hey, how can I minister to this person and show them where they're, they're missing the mark, where things are incomplete, how they've borrowed some ideology out there that seems Christian, but really isn't the full-bore gospel at all. See, every believer in this room this morning is a growing theologian. You're growing in your understanding of what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about man, what the Bible says about Christ, and what the Bible says that man must do in response to those three things. So as you grow in your theology, you will learn to be a careful or to be careful with theology and be able to identify the incomplete and distorted ideas of the professing believers around you. God's truth will become more and more solidified in your mind and heart so that you will be quick to identify error. Friends, we don't want to grow this church simply by pulling people in. We want God to grow this church because the Word of God is bearing fruit in the hearts of people that are here. Those are two separate things. So word ministry to professing believers. Follow Paul's example. Be a careful theologian. Secondly, word ministry to non-believers here. And I want you to see the example of Paul as a bold evangelist. So we move from this personal encounter now to the, the, this, this now uh, encounter that Paul is having regularly for three months in the synagogue, in the city. Of course, this is his pattern. We've seen that over and over again. But I want to look at this encounter afresh by asking two questions. What did Paul do in the synagogue, and how did the people respond? So first of all, what did Paul do in the synagogue? Notice three things. Notice, first of all, his manner. He speaks boldly. Secondly, notice his method. He reasoned and persuaded. Nothing new there. This is the same stuff he's doing every time he's going into a synagogue. He's reasoning. It's logic. He's arguing. He's proving. And what he's doing is he's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Turn, if you want, um, in, in your Bibles to Luke's first account, which would be Luke chapter 24, all right? The Gospel of Luke chapter 24. And I want you to notice this passage of Scripture. This is Jesus speaking now to the disciples post-resurrection. Finally, he has revealed himself to them. And notice what he says here. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When Jesus picks up his Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, he sees it screaming about him. It's just he is all over it. And he was teaching the disciples that this is true. Then verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So you have this commission here now at the end of Luke's gospel. You have the commission stated once again a little differently at the beginning of Acts. 
But it's all the same story. It's all the same content. It's all the same witness. And so Paul now is going into the synagogue, and this is what he's saying. He's speaking boldly. He's reasoning, persuading. And the message he gives is about the kingdom of God, which is a summary statement for the gospel. That's pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. But I want you to focus on this word, boldness. This is not the first time we see this word associated with the proclamation of the gospel. It's used ten times in Acts to describe the manner of the the apostles preaching, I should say. In fact, in Acts 4, when Paul and John had been arrested, brought before the Jerusalem council, and then ultimately released, the apostles and their companions uh, together offer a prayer of praise followed by a request, and this is what it is. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So what is boldness? Boldness is speaking the truth in the face of opposition. Being bold does not mean being obnoxious. I told them what for. Bold. No. It's not being rude. You bunch of idiots don't know the gospel. It's not being bold. Being bold isn't getting angry. Bunch of evil hypocrites. It's not boldness. It means being willing to stand up and speak the truth when it is unpopular when there are scoffers, and when there is opposition. Now, there's two illustrations that popped into my mind when I thought about what boldness is. The first one's Charles Simeon, and you've heard, I'm sure, about this before. He was called to pastor Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, which he would pastor ultimately for 54 years. But when he first arrived at the church, the people didn't want him as their pastor. They wanted another guy that was there at the church already. And so they protested against him. And back in those days, families had pews. You would come in, and there would be a door, and you you could lock or unlock that pew. And you sat in your family pew. You knew where you were going to sit. Why? Because you're a signed pew. Well, in protest, they locked their pews. And they stood the whole time during the service as a form of protest. Now, there were people that wanted to come and to sit, and so Simeon brought chairs, wooden chairs, and put them all around the different place. But people would pick the chairs up, and they'd throw them out the building. It wasn't unusual for him, as he was walking through town in Cambridge, for someone to mock him and scoff him, or even to beat him. Now, friends, this lasted for 10 years. I just thought about this. What would it be like to come to a church and to look at a congregation that didn't want you there? Ten years preaching to that kind of congregation. Oh, friends, I love you guys. Can you imagine? But after ten years, God softened their hearts. And they saw the truth of their sinfulness and their wickedness. They humbled themselves. 
he bore fruitful ministry in that church in the years to come. But he stood boldly proclaiming God's truth, preparing a sermon just like he would for any other context because these people needed the truth of God's word. Another one that I'm reminded of is George Whitfield. And he was, he was so opposed in England that he was forced to preach outside. So he took advantage of that. Now, he had this incredibly booming voice, but he preached loudly and oftentimes to thousands of people who were listening to him. One of Whitfield's biographers quotes Whitfield as saying the following, God put within my heart a strong desire to reach the unchurched as well as those who were tired of stale religion. Why not then preach to the masses in the open air, in fields outside of town? Most of the thousands who came to listen enjoyed hearing the gospel presented with, with such energy. Of course, sometimes the crowds grew angry when I called them to repent. One time a mob came at me with murder on their minds, but I managed to escape. People threw fruit, vegetables, and even dead cats at me. Now, if you brought a dead cat today, please refrain, all right? Vegetables, tomatoes, that's fine. Dead cats, not so good. Can you imagine? And the biographer even notes a little further. He says, the people that were doing this were the local pastors who didn't like what he was preaching because they had slipped away into pastoral nothingness. And Whitfield just came and proclaimed the truth of God's word. So, what did Paul do in the synagogue? Well, he was bold. And he proclaimed God's truth with boldness. How did the people in the synagogue respond to Paul's gospel reasoning? It's the same old stuff, isn't it? But when some stubborn, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So we have hard hearts that became stubborn, that continued in unbelief, that spoke evil of the way. Now, this is just a common response that Paul encounters, isn't it? But notice, there are also receptive hearts. In the midst of all this opposition, there are still people listening. There's still people that God is drawing to himself. So even when Paul's message is being maligned, as well as the followers of his message, the way, are being maligned, Paul's bold preaching is bearing fruit in conversions. Because when Paul leaves the synagogue, we find him leaving with disciples. Friends, one of the ways church growth takes place is when we follow Paul's example and we're willing to be bold evangelists. Are you bold in your evangelism? Likely, you're like most Christians, fearful of evangelism, feelings of being ill-equipped to open your mouth and share the good news. I just don't know what to say. I wouldn't know where to begin. I fear that I'd probably do more damage to the cause of Christ if I opened my mouth and said something than helped it. So you've settled for living comfortably in the safe Christian bubble where you can avoid being put on the spot about your faith. But friends, God has called you to let your light shine 
Isn't it interesting that we, we, we'll teach our children that, but we won't believe it? <laughs> Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let light shine, right? Well, do we believe that? Is that what God's called us to? Absolutely. And we can be bold in our evangelism. Again, that doesn't mean we be rude. It means it's time to take a stand for the gospel in such a way that I'm able to declare what that gospel is. So what are you to do if you're fearful? What are you to do if you are feeling ill-equipped? I have five just quick things to mention. Number one, stop believing the devil's lie that you can't testify or evangelize. It's the devil's lie. His goal is to silence every Christian. So if you f your fear has caused you to be silenced, you have played into his hands. Secondly, in light of that, trust that God works through weak vessels like you, like me. God works his will and draws people to himself even through nervous, confused, weak people. Yes, even when you stumble and blunder and mumble your way through your gospel witness, God is at work. Do you think he's like, well, oh, these people... I'm, there's no way I'm going to get the gospel out. <laughs> That's how it is. God is greater than your weakness. He's greater than your stumbling. He works his will in ways that you can't even comprehend. Third, pray for boldness from God through the Holy Spirit as you speak. Remember, this is spiritual warfare. Thank you, kids, for coming up here and reminding us of that. Work hard at growing in your understanding of the gospel. I don't know why we think that becoming a Christian means, okay, I've got a ticket to heaven now, I've got things figured out, I can just coast. No, becoming a Christian is a call to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. It's not talking about becoming a believer. That happens once you become a believer. You work at it, you grow, you Exercise yourself toward godliness. And one of the things you do is you work on understanding the gospel and being able to share it more effectively. And the fifth thing is this partner with others who can both engage or encourage you and keep you accountable. It's so encouraging when there are people around you that are just asking you questions like, hey, how did it go with that conversation you had the other day? Have you been able to follow up? You know, tell me, where, where did you fail? What did you struggle with? And it, it being a safe place to grow and to learn. Friends, even when it seems like the world is against you, there is likely someone who is listening, whom God is drawing to himself through your faithful and fearful boldness. Are you a bold evangelist? Careful theologians, bold evangelists. Third, ministry to true believers. And here we see Paul as the faithful pastor teacher. I want to I really see two things as we, actually I think there's three things that I, I want you to see from these next few verses. First of all, gospel determination. This is such a wonderful thing, especially for us as a, as a church that is kind of wandering a little bit 
In other words, we don't have our own home. We're thankful to be here. We're thankful for the rent that we can, we can contribute, but this is not our facility. Notice it says, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So since Paul and the many Christian disciples left the synagogue, they needed to find a place to meet. And so he finds this new place, the hall of Tyrannus, likely a lecture hall and the hall of Tyrannus. It's probably named after the professor that owns this particular hall, and the word Tyrannus means tyrant. So you can just imagine what kind of professor he was, at least his reputation was such. Now, they had this new place to meet, and this is certainly a wonderful thing, but there's also a side note here. This is not in the original text, but they're in some, some, some older texts, and just kind of noted to the side that likely they were meeting during the midday, during the siesta time. And just want you to think about this. The time when the lecture halls were typically used were in the cool of the morning and the cool of the evening. In the afternoon, people tended not to go to class. They didn't have class. Why? Because in that context, it was really, really hot. Now, in other words, the reason they were able to meet there is because it wasn't being used. And they took the worst time and were satisfied with the worst time to spend time in the Word of God. See, Paul isn't concerned about the heat. He has a new place. He has a new time. And he was meeting with the disciples daily. So when God's people are thrown out of their places of worship, they will find a place to meet. Let me say that again. When God's people are thrown out of their places of worship, they will find a place to meet. It could be in a classroom. It could be in a home. It could be in a backyard. It could be in a field. It could be in a warehouse. It could be under a tree somewhere. The true church is determined to gather, to worship, to feast on the proclaimed word of God. We've got a sense of that when we went through COVID. We want to meet. <laughs> Let's meet. How are we going to meet? Well, we don't want to meet. We can't meet. The government's saying we can't meet. Christians, we want to meet. And praise God for the technology that we had. If we didn't have the technology we had, we would have been looking at other alternatives. Why? Because God's church is called to meet. Paul here with the disciples find a place to do that. That's gospel determination. Secondly, gospel foundation. Verse 10, this continued for two years. Again, notice that Paul is emphasizing there or Luke is emphasizing two years. Two years daily, he's reasoning, he's making an argument, he's proving, he's persuading from the Scriptures. And he would be teaching and training the disciples, the followers of Christ, in much the same way that Jesus had done with his disciples, and then as Jesus did with Paul himself. Paul is the head, sorry, Paul as he had done in other places, seeks to lay a solid foundation for the church in Ephesus to be strong and to be mature. In other words, he's laying down a solid foundation of sound doctrine. In fact, as the Apostle Paul finishes up his last three letters to particular pastors, Timothy and Titus, this theme of sound doctrine is, is resounding over 23 times in the passages. And here's just one example. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
verses 3 through 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Paul is concerned that the church is sound in its doctrine. Now, if you add up the hours, five hours a day for five days during the week, let's just use that conservatively, for 50 weeks and then for two years, that's 2,500 hours of instruction. That's a lot of work. And if Paul was a tent maker while he's in Ephesus, he's getting up, he's going to work, he's going to the hall, he's teaching, he's getting done. It's a long day. It's labor, friends. Why? Because the church needed to be built up in the faith. The church needed to have strong roots in the gospel. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both the Jews and the Greeks. Gospel determination, gospel foundation. Third, gospel participation. Who was attending these daily meetings? The disciples. Not just the leaders. The disciples. And friends, it's a reminder for us all of the need and the importance of the ongoing steady instruction of the Word of God outside the Sunday morning gathering. Growing in sound doctrine is not just for pastors, elders, and other teachers. It is for every child of God, for every believer. In fact, it is the failure to do this that is the reason why Paul writes his letter to to the Corinthian church, his first one, And he identifies there, look, I wanted to come with you with some some strong or some solid food, but you could only handle milk. Why? You you should be able to be mature, but you're not. And this is part of the reason why there's so much trouble among, among the people here. Without sound doctrine, you have an immature, shallow church. Now, friends, Sound doctrine here is not about smarts or simply filling up your head with Bible knowledge. It is about the steady growth of your faith. It is about your progressive sanctification. It's about growing in maturity and becoming more and more like Christ. So friends, is it any wonder that having seen what we've seen so far, that the church in Ephesus would become an epicenter for greater ministry throughout that region? Again, read what it says right at the end. So that all the residents of what? Asia. That's not Ephesus. That's the whole, I want to say state. It's the whole region. All of them heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greeks. And is it any wonder that multiple men, such as Epaphras, would be trained and established to to go to places and establish churches in places like Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis. Friends, we have the wonderful privilege to place ourselves under the teaching of God's Word and so be trained and equipped for gospel ministry. Are you taking advantage of this? Now, bringing it to a close, we've already seen Paul's word ministry to professing believers where he shows us the need to be a careful theologian. We've seen his ministry to unbelievers where he shows us the need to be bold in evangelism. And now he 
He's shown us ministry to true believers where we're called to sit under faithful teachers and learn sound doctrine. But as we close, I want to quickly highlight the following three reflections on the reality and the implications of what we have just studied. Three things. And I'm not trying to be cute, but just you'll get that when I say this. First of all, word ministry is messy. Right? I mean, just think about this. You, you never know who you're going to meet. You, you never know what they're going to say. You can't always be sure that you have the right answer or that you can articulate it just the right way. You can't guarantee that people will listen or take interest in the gospel. Sometimes people will oppose you. They'll do it verbally, they'll do it socially, they'll do it legally, they'll do it physically. You might face a mob one day and the very next day see people gloriously saved. Word ministry is messy. And so we should expect it to be messy. Secondly, word ministry is sweaty. It takes work. It takes hard work on the part of those handling the Word of God. It takes hard work on the part of those receiving the Word of God. Friends, growth in Christ doesn't happen passively. We must be actively pursuing our maturity in Christ. When I thought about this, I thought about our equipping class. We've had two sessions so far, and each of those two sessions, the night that we met was like the hottest night in the whole year. And we're in a room where there isn't much airflow. So we have all the windows open, and it's stuffy, and we have fans going on, and you hear the sounds of the cars driving all over the place, and people are coming in, and they're sitting there doing this kind of stuff. I'm sweating, Dennis is sweating, other people are sweating, but we're there because we want to grow, because we want to, we want to make progress in our Christian walk. It's hard work. It's sweaty work, but we press on because we want to see our lives more conformed to be like Jesus. Now, I'm also reminded of one experience I had in, in the church in Bolivia. We were, it was a weeknight, and we went to this particular house, and they were having a church in this particular house, and it was like on their porch, and we got there. We're like, all right, where are we going to sit? You know, my, my pastor, Matias Mojica, was taking us. He's like, oh, we're going to have church out here on the patio. Of course, that's nice. There were no places to sit on the patio. What are we going to do? Well, off to the side, there were some bricks, and there were some planks of wood. And before long, we were seeing, all right, they're putting three bricks up, three bricks up, putting a plank. Another one, three bricks, three bricks, plank. So everyone's sitting now down really, really low on these rickety planks of wood, men, women, children, pregnant women, and we're singing, and we're encouraged, and we're rejoicing. It was hot. There were hundreds of bugs. And of course, because I was preaching, I needed a light so I could see. And when you have a light and there's lots of bugs, you become one with the bugs, right? And so you try not to go, you know, what? <laughs> you know, that's all part of your, your homiletic is learning how to cough properly. But friend, they sat on the benches, they sang songs together, and they studied and listened to the word being taught, all with the joy of Christ. They were sweaty, but they were going to do it. 
word ministry is sweaty. And, and with our American comforts, I fear that sometimes we just won't do it because we don't want to get sweaty. There's this thing called deodorant, friends. Mind you, are. it's a joke, right? Number three, ministry is fruity. I know, it's, it just, it fits. It fits. The word of God, when ministered faithfully, will produce fruit in people in ways that are supernatural. Do you believe that? See, if we just think of it as head knowledge, then that's all you're going to get. But we understand that the, the ministry of the word produces supernatural change. Not just in others, but in you. You place yourself under it. Say, God, I want you to do something in me through the word. People will hear the word of God and be converted. Others who are Christians will hear the word of God and be convicted and encouraged and strengthened and built up and equipped. And you may not see the fruit immediately. You may not see the fruit at all. But you can be sure that God's word, when ministered by a child of God, goes out with power to accomplish God's purposes. So friends, in summary here, don't shrink back from being a clear theologian, a bold evangelist, or even a faithful teacher, or sitting under that faithful teaching. God knows what he's doing. And even though you are an unlikely vessel, God will work through you. He will. He promises it. His word is powerful. Friends, the word of God is central to our church growth strategy. Let's fight to keep it there. Let's love to keep it there. If it means getting sweaty, so be it. Because we know it will produce fruit. Lord, help us today. We have over and over and over again been listening to Luke hammering the same nail. The Word of God brings growth. The Word of God brings growth. Lord, help us to hear the importance of that once again. But Lord, not just to kind of chalk it off and say, okay, that was nice, but Lord, may it take root in us that we can see some different ways that the Word of God is ministered to different people in different contexts. And as a result of that, Lord, would you continue to grow your church? Would you accomplish your purposes and your will? We ask in your precious name. Amen.